listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod. I'm Amanda Carpenter and today we are discussing green buildings in all their shapes and sizes. House building is in a state of crisis, we're told. We don't have enough new homes being built and there aren't enough to rent. So is this a golden opportunity to rethink what we do about the UK's housing stock? Can we design them better, more environmentally friendly, better for people to live in and better for our planet? Um, Is this the the great chance to create the affordable, sustainable home? Or is an affordable, sustainable home a contradiction in terms? So we're going to talk green buildings, not just homes, but office buildings and green infrastructure. And to join me in that conversation, I have two really skilled and interesting guests, both of whom have professional and personal experience of green buildings um, and bring different perspectives to the table. I have Julie Hirigon, who is Chief Executive of the UK Green Building Council, and she focuses on delivering lasting change within the industry by engaging not just her members, but regulators and stakeholders. She has a background in sustainability and currently sits as a commissioner for the Mayor of London's London Sustainable Development Commission. So, Julie, welcome. Thank you. And my second guest is Helena Heathfield who's been an environmentalist nearly all her life. Um, She joined Greenpeace and became a vegetarian at the age of nine. And so her love of the planet started early and has continued ever since. Um, She's led on sustainability for the London Olympic Park. She's worked with a number of organisations through Julia's Bicycle. And she's currently with the Islington Sustainable Energy Partnership. Her personal experience of green buildings comes from living in Bedsead, which is South London's first eco-housing development, and it's just celebrated its 16th birthday. So welcome, Helen. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about this fascinating subject, um, we're going to kick off with our usual the good, the bad and the ugly slot. So, Julie, can I ask, do you have a good, bad or ugly you'd like to share with us? I do. Um, I think it's a good. Um, We ran an event with Tesla last week and we heard about the principles that they put at the heart of their sort of business strategy. Um, They're frequently heralded as being um, the major disruptor to the car manufacturing industry. But actually, they're, they're a lot more than that. They're trying to be a sort of vertically integrated energy company. Um, and I think their um, their experience and their journey so far provides some really helpful leadership tips to many of the built environment leaders that we work with anyway. So the idea of um, looking very far ahead and um, thinking to the future for decisions that we're making today is one that I think this sector um, could, could draw a lot from, but also um, putting sustainability central to the mission and to the company's purpose and repeating that as a mantra to employees new and existing um, and thinking beyond the organization. So as I said, Tesla's trying to sh- transform the whole energy system. Um, you know, the real estate and construction property companies can think well beyond individual projects 
um, or construction sites. Um, and that relentless focus on scaling up and accelerating. Um, they, Tesla have a master plan. Um, they know exactly where they're trying to get to. I think all of those things would be really valuable for built environment professionals. They're a really interesting and exciting company, Tesla, aren't they? I mean, we all know about the, you know, the iconic car, unaffordable by most of us, well, certainly currently. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? It's the massive battery technology driving that change it through all of the supply chain and mm. actually through domestic cars as well as through those high-end luxury cars because mm. my understanding is everything Tesla do around that battery power will then work its way through to the, the, the mass car market but but as you say en- energy as well and mm. conquering space I think yeah. on the, somewhere on the agenda so but for a company like Tesla, I can see that sustainability would sit at the heart of what it does, because that's basically what it is. It's about a sustainable technology, whether it's car or battery or whatever. But for something like a house builder or a, a property developer, how can that translate? Because they might say, well, you know, sustainable is part of what I do, but it can't sit at the heart of what I do. Would that message be welcomed, do you think, by some of your members? I mean, I think we're seeing more examples of businesses in this sector putting social value, environmental performance, sustainability, however one calls it, at the heart of their purpose and their, their sort of core mission. I mean, ultimately, they're providing housing for people. It's a basic need, isn't it? So there is a, a, a very fundamental sort of social and ethical benefit. Um, but in doing that in the wrong way, they could be undoing all of that good that, that is inherently part of their business model. And as scrutiny has increased in terms of what our business is actually putting back to society, it becomes almost imperative to put that sustainability you know, mission at the heart of the business strategy. It just isn't acceptable to deliver unsustainable product. So I think we are at the start of that transformation and that shift, but we're definitely seeing more and more businesses take that on as a core responsibility um, and not just because they have to but because they, it's the right thing to do. That's really heartening because we've always believed at the pod and elsewhere that sustainable business is, is the best way to do business. I mean it's, it has a massive business benefit both mm. financial and also in terms of uh, your customers mm. and your employees so it's a sustainable business is a good business. Helen have you a good bad or ugly? I do. I wonder if it's Good, bad and ugly. So the recent conversations, well, ever since Blue Planet 2 about ocean plastics, I've been very frustrated by the tendency to focus on the 10 big sources, eight of which are rivers across Asia. And that being used with the conversation that in Europe, it's not our problem. We don't need to do anything about it. So first of all, I think it's really important everything we do have to do about it. And second of all, to make ourselves aware of all the action that is happening across Asia. And a really brilliant example of that is Clear Community, which is based in Indonesia, a grassroots organisation doing beautiful arts and culture creative activities that involve the whole community across small fishing villages. And are they using 
reuse plastic as part of the artwork or is it just an awareness raising activity? They're doing a lot of litter picks and then creating um, art and crafts from what they find and also looking at how they can reduce their own use of single-use plastics through creating alternatives. Yeah, we had um, a pod episode with Emily Penn recently who is the ocean advocate as you know and I think what was really interesting, one of the things she was saying is that many of those communities have no rubbish system. They don't even have a word for bin because they've never had a non-biodegradable item of rubbish. Everything they've had has always been natural and therefore it's okay if they throw it in the river. So there's a real education programme to do there, isn't there, to explain what this terrible toxic stuff is that we're pumping into their communities and how they can manage that properly. Mm. Definitely. Thank you for those. I have one actually, um, and it's good, which is unlike me. Um, I just wanted a quick shout out to the mayor, so you can pass this on, Julie, to say congratulations for ordering um, some new, I think it's 68 double-decker buses, which are going to be electric and electrically powered. And that's going to increase the fleet of buses by that, those sorts of buses by tenfold within London by summer next year apparently so we'll wait and see if that happens but it's just another symptom that this is something we all have to take responsibility for and this is collective action so 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 a shout out to the mayor and a thanks from from those of us who have to trouble on public transport so green buildings julie i'm going to start with you because this is an enormous subject but can you start maybe by just filling us in on what the Green Building Council does and who might be part of that and then maybe we can talk about what we mean by a sustainable building. Mm. Sure um, so the UK Green Building Council is a charity and a membership organisation so we have 450 or so members um, they span the whole value chain of property and construction so everything from investors, property developers, construction companies, architects, engineers, product manufacturers and everything in between. Um, we also have lots of universities and local authorities as part of our membership. And we, our work is really to bring them all together for a better built environment. So we do that by um, through a whole series of events and knowledge sharing, education and training opportunities, um, collaborative research programs. Um, yeah, you name it, but lots of ways of sort of um, bringing them together around better outcomes. So potentially you've got competing organisations sitting around your table? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they tend to leave their commercial um, competition hat at the door if they come to some of our events. And the intention is very much to think beyond their own sort of commercial interests, but to think, um, you know, across the whole built environment value chain. We do that for a very specific reason. It's a really fragmented industry and absolutely everyone has a role to play. So only by sort of educating everyone and bringing them all together, do they understand what their role is, and but also what everyone else is, and and what to ask for, and and how to procure effectively. Um, so it's really important. So when we talk about built environment, we mean all aspects, don't we? We don't just mean office box, towns, town planning, city planning. We're talking about anywhere where there is a a, a built entity a new building or an old building and actually managing the relationships between those and the new buildings coming through is that right that's would be our definition of built environment yeah anything constructed really is part of the built environment 
Yeah. Okay. So when we talk about a sustainable building, I mean, have you got a kind of measure that people should be looking at in terms of being able to assess whether the building they work in is sustainable? I'm sure lots of pod listeners are in buildings that are quite old, probably overheated, poorly ventilated, don't have particularly appealing lights. I mean, all of those are the obvious things, mm. but there must be more to it than that. We, I mean, as you say, it's a huge topic. We tend to prioritise around five key themes, which we feel are the most material or significant themes for built environment and buildings in particular. So we look at a building that can mitigate and adapt to climate change. So it reduces its carbon emissions, um, should, should have none, ideally, um, but I might come back to that at the end, um, and be adaptable to climatic variations. Um, resource use and efficiency. So people increasingly talk about a more circular economy, one where there is no waste and we are continually reusing our resources more efficiently. Um, nature and biodiversity is a crucial theme. Um, so integrating nature both into the building, like green walls, green roofs and so on, uh, but also maximising the amount of green and uh, public space outside the building. Um, health and well-being has really risen up the agenda and is absolutely crucial. So the building should work as hard for people as it does for the planet. Otherwise, it's clearly not doing its, its um, work properly. So, um, yeah, the whole rise of wellness and safety and health and in the building is really important. And then there are lots of wider socioeconomic aspects, um, which relate more to sort of the local community, the local businesses, job creation skills, uh, all sorts of sort of, um, you know, valuable social and economic kind of attributes that buildings can put back to the community. So those are really the five key parameters that we would try to look at. I can see that working for new builds and new towns or redevelopments. And a few weeks ago, we had um, Steve from Granary Square, which mm. obviously is an example in London of a fantastically well-planned, master-planned new development with a strong sense of sustainability and a very pleasing green space to be in. But m many of us work and live in buildings that are older, we live in towns that have been around for, you know, decades, hundreds of years in some cases. So how do we sort of retrofit the environments we live in to, to meet some of those, mm. those standards under your five criteria? I mean, it, obviously, it's a crucial consideration. Something like 80% of the buildings that will be here in 2050, which is when we want our climate reduction targets to be met, um, already here today. So for as a nation, the whole retrofitting piece is absolutely crucial. And it, it's a really complex question, um, which will relate to different building types and so on. But it's one that we absolutely need to tackle. There's, you know, there's plenty of examples of um, very old and indeed historic buildings that have a lot of planning constraints on them and so on that have managed to be upgraded to very, very high standards indeed. So it, it's, it can be done. Um, and increasingly, you know, we're, we're seeing examples of where it is being done. The challenge is more around getting the incentives and the drivers aligned to ensure that people want to do it, particularly around homes, where it requires the homeowner to invest some capital potentially in upgrading their home and not necessarily recouping that from a value point of view. Um, so we need the, the right market drivers to sort of point 
in the right direction. Um, so increasingly things like green mortgages, um, you know, access to finance and low interest loans, um, perhaps stamp duty rebates, you know, those sorts of things would really help. What's a green mortgage? So mortgage lenders um, who take energy efficiency and other criteria into account upon, um, you know, their lend their, their risk assessment and their lending criteria. Okay. And do you think there's an opportunity here for, you know, developers to really push green sustainable homes? Because I suspect most of us who, you know, might not live in one, probably don't live in one, would see them as more expensive, both to build and as the initial investment. One would hope long term they'd be cheaper to run. But but as an initial investment, a sustainable home is likely to be more expensive, isn't it? Um, the price of achieving really high standards of performance has decreased uh, exponentially in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, up until the point where um, the government pulled back the zero carbon um, new build standard for new homes, which was just before it was due to come in in 2016. The price had been coming down really quite dramatically. So I would challenge the, the conception that this has to cost a lot more um, and a lot of the evidence suggests that if it's taken into consideration really early in the design process, it shouldn't cost that much more. It might cost a little more. What we need to do is look at the whole life cost of, a, of an asset or a building and actually the operational cost of the building will be far, far lower. So it's about who recoups the value at what stages in the cycle, um, which is a more sensible way of looking at it. I, I think in terms of the appeal, uh, the attractiveness of green homes to the general public, increasingly the links between green and healthy and sort of um, you know, low toxicity, natural ventilation, access to views and sunlight, biophilia, which is sort of n nature, touching and feeling it, they make people feel better. And people care about how they feel, feeling good. They care about their families getting clean air and those sorts of things. So I think that where those links are made, there's a really strong market um, appeal for more sustainable homes. Yeah, I'm certain there's a demand. It's whether or not house builders are responding to that and whether they put a premium on a, a, a sustainable home instead of mm. making it you know, as cheap as other homes. And I suppose there's also that thing about an investment, isn't there? You know, the concept that you might buy a house and then live in it more or less forever mm. rather than this endlessly using property as a way of creating wealth so buying selling buying selling and actually you know if you're investing in it then you will recoup yep. those benefits won't you because if you're there for 30 40 years and you bring up your family then you know that's going to recoup return your investment whereas if you're just buying it and selling it in five years you're not yeah absolutely and and i think there's a really strong quality of life um sort of you know association as well is what what to do people want the biggest thing that they ever buy in their lives to actually be delivering in terms of value to them as a person and how that affects their quality of life? So I think there's a really strong element there. It's about our relationship with space. Helen, you spend a lot of time looking at this, but more from a um, professional building point of view, I guess, don't you? Because at the um, Islington Sustainable Energy Partnership, I'm imagining a lot of what you do is working with um, large organisations or employers to try and look at their energy use in relation to their buildings? Yeah, it's looking very much at their own buildings. So, for example, Saddles Wells Theatre installed 20 kilowatts of solar panels on their roof a few years ago, uh, switched all of their lighting to LED, saved 
Just the LED lighting saved about 17% from their electricity bill the next year. So we're seeing, especially with LED lighting now, very quick payback times um, for which companies can enjoy a financial benefit from making that investment. And it's not just the money, there's just the time it takes for people to put new uh, bulbs in and once you've put an LED in that's going to be there for years and years and Islington Council itself is uh, doing big LED refits to its own offices and also looking at how we can install LED lighting when council housing is void and also when tenants are in place and especially when we're putting LED lighting into the home of someone who's elderly we know they're never going to have to worry about that bulb ever again during their lifetime it isn't going to come to the end of its lifetime it's a personal safety benefit almost yeah definitely that as well and I think in terms of the quality of life benefits that Julie was talking about in Islington for our uh, council tenants we're often just looking at fuel poverty as being you know people aren't going to have quality of life if they're having to choose whether to heat or eat in a particular week so fuel poverty has been what's driving all of the work that the council's been doing with its own housing estates and um, is the main reason that we've installed Bun Hill which is a large heat network near Old Street in Islington and we're now expanding that and drawing heat out of the northern line to heat 500 homes in the borough so those kind of projects fuel poverty is definitely what's driving it but then also there's a huge carbon reduction agenda there that we're achieving as well and hopefully making the northern line a more pleasant place to be as well and hopefully it'll be um, uh, complete towards the end of this year and we're already looking at which other uh, there might be a project on the Piccadilly line that we'll be able to do also so once we've provided that test and shown that it works we're really looking forward to it happening all over London. So how does that work? I mean, you're taking, you're sucking the hot air yeah. out? or Yeah, heat recovery and a heat pump to then get it up into the homes. What a brilliant idea. Hmm. <laughs> oh, hats off to Islington. Just, just to intervene there, yeah. um, low carbon heat is probably our biggest challenge mm. for homes um, because heating buildings alone is 10% of our national carbon footprint and homes are by far the single biggest part of that so it's absolutely crucial that we get those um, pilot kind of case studies out there and that much greater adoption of those is brilliant. So low carbon heat would be um, providing heating fuel sources from carbon neutral sources or low carbon sources like wind and renewable energy. Is there something in there about consumption as well, encouraging people to just turn the heating down, think differently about how they use heat? Absolutely. I mean, the buildings need to be as efficiently operated as possible. Um, You know, the sort of energy efficiency piece comes in right at the top of the priority list. But then whatever heat is provided should be decarbonised. And that's a real challenge because we're built on kind of gas networks and so on. So it is quite tricky. Yeah. A big project for us is the Red Brick Estate, which... um, 
basically had their heating turned on in October and then turned back off again in May and we're installing heat meters so that people will be able to control their own heat use and get metered accordingly. Uh, but uh, balancing with that, it's very important to recognise that a lot of uh, residents are elderly are sitting at home all day. They just do need to be warm. So a lot of those projects, we're not metering their heat. We don't want to charge them more if they're using more. So there is also sort of social balances to achieve. That's when we think of something that I want to talk about in a moment, but we need to pause for a very quick break. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Planet Pod, brought to you by Aquila Management and the Planet Mark. Do get in touch with us. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or visit the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe to the pod and download earlier episodes. Welcome back. You're listening to Planet Pod and we're talking about green buildings, green homes and sustainable um, master plans for the built environment. And Helen, you were just saying about needing to keep older people warm in their homes, which I think everyone would agree with. Is there possibly an opportunity here for us to rethink our social communities? Because if you're not sitting alone in your flat being heated, if there's somewhere for you to go where you have a, a shared community space, not only will that make you better and improve your personal well-being and your your sense of socialisation, it would also cut costs, wouldn't it? Because we'd only be heating one space instead of 20. I think there's been a lot written recently about the loneliness epidemic and how we need to counter that in all kinds of ways. The, I mean, councils do provide all kinds of social facilities, community centres where people can gather together, get fed, be social. Um, but you can't force people there. No, uh, of course you can't. So. But there's an argument for buildings contributing to some of that loneliness, isn't there? And we had a, a guest on the pod recently who was, who, who'd led some research around that. And I think the fact that we tend to go off into our little isolated blocks and not gather in a social way probably reinforces both that loneliness, but also our drain on resources mm. in terms of heating. Um, there, there is a, a sort of growing trend towards co-working and co-living spaces and obviously with property prices, particularly in London and the South East being what they are, this, um, th these are spaces where the living sort of quarters of the, you know, the, the owned space of the individual are much, much smaller, but the communal spaces are much larger and much more serviced um, and, there, and there are increasing numbers of um, elderly care homes that follow that model as well. So it's a more efficient use of some of the kind of individual resources, but actually a much more social community focused approach, which is quite interesting. And that would allow us to use buildings differently. Because when we were chatting before we went on air, you were saying to me about having to think long term about the housing stock and the building stock that we have. And maybe thinking that our buildings should be used not for single use because mm. we have this rather crazy system don't we where we leave a warm comfortable heated space travel on probably an overheated northern line and go to a building that we're not in all the time that is big and costly and has a huge carbon footprint if you designed it from scratch you'd never do that would you no we have a lot of unused space at any given time so we've probably got amply enough space for the uses that 
we put it to, but because we're siloed in our approach to how we use it, it doesn't work very well. And we have major housing crises and shortages and, and so on. There are some really interesting examples from um, other countries. So um, in the Netherlands, they've been piloting, providing accommodation for free to students who spend time with people in elderly care homes and actually you know, just spending time with them effectively is a, is a social benefit, but they'll teach them um, about technology and how to use their phones and how to get the right programs on their televisions and so on. And they're obviously getting free accommodation. So I think, you know, that's just one example, but there are so many different ways in which we could think about how we're portioning the uses and indeed paying for them. Yeah. yeah, I think it's so much about getting out of your box and coming to share a space. And I guess on that note, I have to ask you about Bedsaid, Helen. I mean, you've got personal experience of living in it. What is, I think, fairly was at the time a, a new and very sort of bold um, environmental housing project, wasn't it? Was it the first or one of the first? I'd say one of the, it was definitely the largest scale. Yeah. Yeah, first zero time. carbon community mm. development yeah isn't it? when the solar panels were put on the roof that was the single largest solar installation in the country at the time and now looking back it just looks tiny <laughs> but it was really big then there's a community center there there's a lot of community activity and uh, so there is that chance to go and gather I think the community side of it is what's most valuable to me because um, there's just a, an email list for all the residents. And so, you know, when you need to borrow a drill or borrow a ladder, then you just send an email round. And I think that's incredibly important. And I know so many of my neighbours by name and I know them very well. Um, so I know, yeah. 20 to 40 neighbours, I would say, really well, got a relationship with them. And I think that's so important and so unusual in London mm. and across most of the UK, unfortunately. And Bed said it is, it's an environmentally friendly, sustainable building, isn't it? So it's a series of individual houses or are they linked? Because people it's a series of terraces. Uh, the south-facing side largely has housing on it and the north-facing side has more work units on it, uh, but also some live units as well. Um, 100 homes, they're thermally massive, which means it's made out of big chunks of concrete. So the architect originally described it as a really well-lit cave. It keeps <laughs> just naturally cool in the summer and then it's really warm and cosy in the winter so my home has no space heating most of the homes have no space heating and it's incredibly comfortable when you visit there are colorful cows spinning around on the roof that's drawing in fresh air and the internal air quality is excellent uh, solar panels green roofs all that stuff there is a lot of stuff about bedzed that didn't work so there was a biomass powered combined heat and power unit that was switched off within the first year now this year we've finally got it turned back from gas to biomass but just for a heat network uh, this time um, the solar panels we don't have good information from the freeholder, which is Peabody, about how much energy is being made. And 
a lot of us residents are concerned that possibly no energy is being made anymore because all the inverters have gone bust. So there are a lot of concerns about how Peabody is managing the estate and how the, how the whole estate is performing now. Well, it's a shame because it was such a pioneering idea, wasn't it? Are they attractive when you survive concrete caves? You know, if people haven't seen it, are they attractive to look at? They are. I love my home. <laughs> I suppose, well, I'm not an original resident. Uh, we bought our home nearly 12 years ago from the first couple who'd lived there. And um, they were not interested in the environmental side of it at all. They'd just bought of it because they'd been happening to drive past when it was under construction thought wow that looks amazing I want to live there and they yeah got themselves to be one of the first on the list so there's a lot of people there that don't care about the environmental side at all and definitely bedstead residents there are a disproportionate number of architects there because people are just very interested in it um, I think it looks great it doesn't look like a Barrett's home. It's not your the <laughs> usual box. Um, the big, colourful wind cows were very much designed to be a feature. And now the technology has changed. They don't need to be so odd looking. Uh, I think if a, a, a home could be built now that had the same performance standards as Bedzed and looked completely normal, I would say. Mm. Mm. But it is, yeah, it looks a bit like a greenhouse with lots of glass on the south side. It's lovely very special we'll put some pictures up on the website mm. we've been talking about um green homes do you have a favorite development i mean you're probably not allowed to say this am i julie because you're probably allowed to show partiality but i'm aware of quite a lot of really interesting quite large scale um sustainable or at least moving towards sustainability um housing developments there's a there's a lot in cambridge for example on the outsides of cambridge and and they look much less like bedstead and much more like possibly even the Scandinavian wood-covered mm. sort of type buildings. Do you have a favourite or um, one that you think stands out because of its merits as being particularly sustainable? I, I don't, and I probably wouldn't um, sort of cite the favourites amongst our membership anyway. But I think that I would echo what Helen was just saying, which is in with today's technologies, the availability of um, choice to arrive at a really, really outstanding performance on a new build is is very much there. So, you know, you, you don't have to compromise aesthetics for really high performance on a new build. I think those that, for that reason, what would impress me more is a really deep retrofit of an existing building. Um, and there are, as I said, increasing examples of those being done in really challenging sort of locations and buildings. So... Some you mentioned the, listed buildings. Can you yeah. have one that you can share with us? So, so Grosvenor um, and the Crown Estate, and well, particularly those two, both of whom are members of ours, so I know them fairly well, have some really historic buildings in London, um, you know, lining Regent Street and down in the Belgravia and so on. And they've done, respectively, some really interesting things on their estate. Um, in fact, they're increasingly working together um, and collaborating so that they can do that um, think beyond your own organisation and think about the system piece that I was talking about earlier on. So they uh, collaborate on a project called the Wild West End, which is um, literally all their roofs 
and the corridors of wildlife between Regent's Park and Green Park and so on are all being repopulated and planted, beehives, they've got honey producing um, you know, hives and so on. And they're all collaborating together to do that, many of the landed estates. So that's a really great example. Um, Grosvenor have some great examples of listed buildings which they've brought up to energy performance certificates of A or B. Um, so it, it, is, it is feasible. The, the other project that's really notable is, um, has come over from the Netherlands and is called Energy Sprong. And this is about covering whole buildings, often quite, um, you know, either council housing or um, estates um, with sort of a whole new cladding and enabling them to be very, very substantially um, improved in terms of their thermal efficiency and energy performance. Um, so there are trials going on in Nottingham at the moment to try and bring the cost down. But this would be sort of very rapid application of quite sort of groundbreaking um, you know, new forms of um, facade in, and insulation in order to sort of really retrofit large, large-scale um, housing. Yeah, you say cladding, and everyone takes a sharp intake of breath because of Grenfell, don't they? So, presumably, this is cladding that is, you know, well tested and reliable, and is going to do what it was supposed to do, mm. rather than just, mm. yeah, create yeah. the tunnel. It, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of a listed building somewhere in the middle of Mayfair coming up to high levels of sustainability. I'm presuming that's got to be internal. It can't be anything on the outside because mm-hmm. presumably it's the, the listings to do with the aesthetics. So what sorts of things can you do if you've got a, a, a listed building? What can you change out that would make it more energy efficient? I mean, they tend to be deep retrofits. So they're sort of taking much of the interior and upgrading all of their heating, electrical systems, um, you know, the, the, the adding insulation where they can, um, whether that's cavity wall or loft or what have you, um, and uh, changing the, you know, the system that's either generating electricity or power on site. Um, you know, there are lots of different ways in which they'll be tackling it, but there'll be a, a multitude of things and it will be a fairly substantial overhaul of the interior of the building. And expensive, I would think. Um, yeah, I mean, expensive in the sense that it would cost, it's costly to do a major retrofit, whether or not, what the cost premium is of doing a deep green retrofit over a deep retrofit, it, that, that that's really the, the price point that one needs to look at because yeah, it's expensive to just do a deep retrofit anyway. Yeah, of course. And in terms of the new housing stock being built, what percentage is coming up to those levels of sustainability that we would hope for? in terms of, you know, can you say that? Because I know we hear so much about housing at the moment, don't we? There aren't enough bricks, there aren't enough bricklayers, we can't build the stock quickly enough. I mean, that might halt that progress, but have you any idea if we're meeting any form of target around how many sustainable homes we're building? I would put that as one of my bad or ugly, I think, in terms of an ugly truth, which is that the new homes being built today other than those being built by very progressive developers, which are fair, you know, relatively few and far between, are not meeting the standards we need them to meet in 10, 15, 20 years' time, let alone 50. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't know the percentage in absolute amounts. It would be quite hard to calculate that. But um, the, the standards to which we're building today are not what they should be. 
That's it was really definitely the ugliest of uglies, I would say, when the government decided to cancel the Code for Sustainable Homes. And the zero carbon target, mm. yeah. yeah. So you would say that we need that leadership at government level. We need policy and we need that to be implemented at national level, but also encouraging local councils to take action. Lots of local authorities are setting their own standards. Islington has got a very strong standard on uh, carbon across mm. the borough and has also got a carbon offset fund where we're gathering money from developers for the carbon they're not able to offset on site. And then we're using that for those large scale mm. projects like, for example, taking heat out of the tube. So. Um, there is some of that kind of uh, redistribution of money and carbon happening. Uh, yes, leadership is missing at central government at the moment. Yeah, it's a, such a lost opportunity, isn't it? Because and we've got this point where we do need to build. We've got space to build. We could build within cities and on brownfield sites. So this should be a golden age for sustainable development, shouldn't it? And if, if you've got really you know, big prestige um, landowners like the Crown Estate and Grosvenor taking the time and energy and investment to bring their buildings up to standard. It's yeah. a pretty damning indictment that we can't roll that out across new buildings. I, I completely agree. And I think we, um, you know, this is an industry that is quite obsessed with compliance and regulation. So unless it's regulated, it almost isn't done. Um, and, and therefore, I think we absolutely do need to raise the standards and the building regulations and the, the standards to which we build. We need to move away from regulations that, um, that are based on designing for compliance with the regulation. They need to be based on the ultimate performance of the buildings. We have a huge gap between the way in which buildings are designed and the way they actually operate in practice. And we absolutely have to close that gap. So we need to start getting a bit smarter about how we actually regulate for performance. Um, and I think, you know, I would echo what Helen was saying, that central government has taken a step back in terms of regulating. I think the house building industry has made a good argument that, you know, we need supply and this might affect the supply in terms of viability, which I don't buy into. But um, anything that affects supply or could be deemed to affect supply will be taken seriously by central government. But we are seeing much more leadership from city mayors and local authorities in particular, and um, you know, the, the mayor of London, the mayor of Manchester, the mayor of Bristol, there are some really progressive new build policies coming through at that level. So that's encouraging, and we're certainly at UKGBC working closely with them to, to support that, um, short of something more national. We're missing a trick, aren't we? Because the nature of work is changing and our reliance on technology and the different working patterns will mean that a lot of us won't be in the office nine to five anymore. I mean, you know, a lot of young people coming into the workforce will work flexibly, they'll work from home, they'll work in those co-working spaces. So we need to make the buildings that we build, that we live in, more sustainable for us as humans as well as for the planet. So it's a massive lost opportunity. Mm. And I think probably what we ought to be doing is encouraging everybody to push for that green mortgage if they think about, you know, buying mm. a home, because that in turn will drive the change of housing stock, won't it? Usually on the pod, we ask for a call to action. So I have a kind of vague feeling I know what a Julius is going to be. But Helen, what would your call to action be for pod listeners? What can individuals do or organisations to try and push this debate a bit more? 
My overall plea is to be radical. I think now is the time where we, whatever you can think of to do, we need to do it. And wherever you are in your life, I think potentially radical can just be, first of all, making sure that you eat well to nourish yourself and get enough sleep. If we all did that, then we'd be in a much better state. But I think if, you know, you feel you've got that covered, you're feeling good and healthy and strong, then just go for it. Do whatever you can imagine and then some other stuff as well. Thank you. Be radical. Julie? Well, I think we all use space. We all use buildings, whether they're homes, residential um, or commercial in some way or another. So we can all make a commitment to... Um, achieve a net zero carbon building, whether that's at home or, or at the office. Um, we need all new buildings to be net zero carbon by 2030 and all existing buildings by 2050. That's going to take a really big commitment from absolutely every single sort of person in the built environment chain, but also all of us as consumers and users of buildings. So we can start to get on that journey now. And that does mean maximising efficiency, decarbonising the energy supply um, and focusing on carbon relentlessly and not just energy. Thank you. Be radical and decarbonise. Huge thanks to my guests, Julie and Helen, a fascinating conversation. Thanks as always to our producer and a thank you to Breakthrough for supporting the pod. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Join us again soon. Planet Pod.